right, good morning. Welcome back, everyone. Good morning. Just telling someone you just cannot uh, replicate or replace the gathering of the saints. So it's great to be uh, gathering and to hear the worship of God's people. Uh, would you guys uh, join me and open your Bibles to John chapter 15 this morning? 15th chapter of John, we are continuing uh, in our verse-by-verse exposition through the Gospel of John, and uh, today we come to a critical portion of Scripture, and though these are uh, probably not verses typically highlighted in your Bible, they are of extreme importance. Uh, These are not verses that you will typically find on a bumper sticker on the back of a car, These are probably not verses that you uh, have on a magnet hanging on your refrigerator, and yet they probably should be. Because here in verses 18 through 27, um, Jesus, I will say, balances all of the wonderful promises that we've reading about, chapters 13, 14, and through 15, of comfort and blessing with this very clear warning. And it is a warning of the world's hatred for Christ and those who follow and love him. In fact, I can't think of a more timely message than the one that the Lord of Sovereignty put before us today. They are critical for us to consider and incredibly significant in understanding the Christian's walk, the Christian's life. Uh, These reveal... The true cost of being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, when we go back and consider everything that has happened, everything that has transpired over the last 24 months, um, none of us would have ever have expected to what has happened. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ all but shut down across the world? Our government mandating its citizens to take a vaccine or you could lose your job. People in the United States walking around outside or in their cars with masks on. I mean, I could go on and on, but the point is 24 months ago, if I had told you any of these things were going to be a reality, something that you would be seeing, you would have laughed at me and probably called me delusional. And yet, here we are. Here we are, church. And so... I say of this not to make some kind of a statement. I don't care if you have a mask. I don't care if you got the shot. But in order for you to take seriously the words of the Lord Jesus Christ here. Just because we are here in our nation not dealing with real persecution right now. If the last 24 months have taught us anything. It doesn't take a lot of time for a whole bunch of things to change real quickly. Real quick. And those who have discernment should feel a weightiness to the air that is around us. And it's kind of like the divine hand clock of God has suddenly been wound up and sped up. There is a sifting of the Lord's church, praise the Lord. And all the while the world seems to be running ever faster in the opposite direction of God and in opposition to his people. What is Evil is now being called good. What was good is now being called evil. And so as we look to the future, the future, we wonder, what is life going to be like for our children? What is life going to be like for our grandchildren? Will the church in this country face opposition and persecution to the likes that it has never seen? And yet, as we ponder these questions, we know that God is sovereign. And that this very moment in time has been planned before all of eternity. And still, we ask the question, is this his will for us? Will the hatred of Christians rise to even greater depths of evil? Will we here in the United States face this or will these coming events usher in a revival for his church here in our nation or are we on the very cusp of the Lord's return 
However, the Lord thing, works things out, they will be for his glory. And here in chapter 15, he tells his own what to expect from the world. So as we continue in the Lord's farewell discourse with now just the 11, we'll be looking at verses 18 through 27 this morning. Um, but just for some additional context to under some of these scriptures, I want us to read um, right through to chapter 16, verse 4. So let's begin uh, there. Chapter 15, these are, again, the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says in verse 18, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. Because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also were bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Chapter 16, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. For I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. In order to um, understand these uh, verses properly, uh, we, we need to understand the context to, to what Jesus um, is working off here. Remember, this whole section started back in um, chapter 13 in the upper room. And the whole overarching theme over the last several chapters has been that of love. John starts chapter 13, verse 1, with these words. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. In John 13, verse 34, Jesus said, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Then if you were to have listened to last week's message, we saw Jesus repeat this command in chapter 15, in verse 12, This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Jesus's love for his own is the standard. And it's the standard to which we are now commanded as followers of Christ to follow. But what Jesus makes clear here and over and over again is that God loves his own. God loves his own. And he has not left us as orphans. All right? Listen, um, life might be a mess, right? And we may not understand all of what God's plan is um, in every situation of our life, but he never stops loving his children. He never stops loving his own. His plan is always the best plan. And we know that and we trust that. It's really Romans 8 verse 28, right? We know that for those who love God, 
all things work together for good for those who are called according to whose purpose? His purpose. His purpose. He's working everything right out right now for his glory. Um, no matter how bad things do appear out there, as I said earlier, nothing has taken him by surprise. He who sits on the throne laughs. He scoffs at the king's plotting and planning. He knows exactly how this entire thing is going to end. Um, now, do you remember what Jesus called the disciples in uh, last week's passages? He called them his what? You are my friends. Friends, right? That's the relationship that you and I have with the living God. No longer calls us servants. No longer calls us slaves. We, we are still slaves. He has called us friends. And since we are friends with God, do we have anything to fear? No. No. If we are loved by the one who surpasses all, if we are loved by the one who transcends all, what are we to fear in this life? Are we to fear man? Are we to fear the worldly system? Is the believer's future somehow all of a sudden uncertain? Does, does God not know how to bring his own people to glory? Last week we read that one of the benefits of being friends with God is that Jesus hasn't held anything back from us. He said that at the uh, end of verse 15, verse, chapter 15, verse 15, but I have called you friends for that all I have heard from my father I have made known to you. And these are profound truths of love and um, of provision uh, that the Lord Jesus Christ promises to his own. And they are so important as he is preparing the 11 for, dis for discipleship, for the Great Commission. But it, it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. In our verses today, verses 18 through 27, he also prepares them because he is the Lord of truth with a warning of what is to come. He tells them first of the relationship they, they have with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And now he tells them what their relationship is going to be with the world. This, brothers and sisters, is the cost of discipleship. It's a stunning shift. As, as Jesus goes from the theme of love to the word hate. Hate, or hated, appears eight times there in our verses, twice we see the word persecuted or persecuted. And the point that Jesus makes here is simple. The more your life approximates him, the more you will be hated by the world. So let's get into these verses and let Jesus explain why it is that the world will hate them and us and anyone who follows the Lord Jesus Christ. I've divided this passage, you'll see in the back of your bulletin, three sections. First section, verses 18 through 21, and the hatred of the world. That's what we see here, the hatred of the world. So let's look at these verses and expound upon them. Verse 18, Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Now, before any, we go any further, it's important that we define who the world is here. What does that word world mean? It's the word cosmos in the Greek. He's not talking about the physical world that um, we just live in. Rather, he's talking about the world system, the system of the world. And this is the context. Um, and the system of the world is if the unregenerated world who is controlled by the power of Satan. Okay, it is his organized system, the God of this age, the, God, the prince of the air, that is Satan's domain, which is in rebellion against God, which has rejected God's son. And because Satan hates God, he hates those who will truly follow him, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we get ourselves into trouble when we start believing that nobody else has ever experienced the problems that I, I'm going through. No one's ever had it as bad as me. We usually end up, tend to end up getting isolated in those hardships and, and we will sometimes go to a place of uh, pity and we believe things like no one's ever gone through what, what it is that I've gone through. 
that's all a lie. All right. And here Jesus is reminding his dis uh, disciples that the rejection that they are going to go through is nothing new. It's something that he has already faced. The disciples would embrace these words over time. These would be very important words for the disciples to understand. In fact, it's um, recorded in, in Mark chapter 10 that as the Lord Jesus Christ is walking with the 12, he has his face resolutely set towards Jerusalem. It says in verse 32, and they were on the road going to Jerusalem and Jesus was, was walking ahead of them. He was absolute and they were amazed. Why? And those who were followed him were afraid. The disciples were afraid. And talking and taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him, the Son, to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and they will kill him. Now, this is before the cross, okay? And they were afraid of what was to come. Right? But after the cross, something miraculous happened. All right? After the cruci crucifixion, they were filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, and they had seen the risen Christ. Um, turn with me there just for a moment to Acts chapter uh, 5, verse 40. Just, just for a moment there. Because uh, remember that the crucifixion... Um, the disciples had, had deserted the Lord um, at the crucifixion. Everyone, all but John and his mother and some of the women. John 20, um, we read that they're hiding out. Absolute fear of the Jews. Um, doors are locked. Lines are closed. But in Acts uh, chapter 5, I want to show you um, how things had changed for him, them even though they knew what the reaction of the world was going to be. The Lord Jesus Christ is warning them now. Again, the night before his crucifixion. Here we are 40-something days later. All right? And in Acts chapter 5, they're preaching Christ. People are being healed. The tides are starting to turn. But then they're brought before the Jewish council, and, and the high priest tells them, uh, we already warned you to stop preaching in the name. Remember, they, they had such a hard time saying the Lord Jesus. Stop talking about the name. And the religious leaders were so angry. They are filled, so filled with hatred by these Christians. They couldn't even say the, the Lord's name. Just stop using the name. Well, Peter says, now, now this is the same Peter, who was scared by the little servant girl just a few weeks ago, right? Here's Peter now, and he, he says, we must obey God rather than men, right? And, and, and Peter said, and oh, by the way, you killed him, God has raised him, and we have seen him. We are his witnesses. Right. And they're so bold in the Holy Spirit in chapter 5 as you go through, and the leaders are enraged. It says that uh, they wanted to kill them, and so they put them out, the disciples, put, they put them outside of the temple so that they can convene. And then here in verse 40 of chapter 5, it says, And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. Now notice what it says in verse 41. Then they, the disciples, left the presence of the council, what? Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. It didn't stop them. And every day, the next day, in the temple, from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. They understood the cost of discipleship. They understood the cost of following the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting. When, when you step back and just take a look at, at John's gospel, his view of what the Christian life is and, and, and what it is of the world John sees them as polar opposites. Um, there's no middle ground in John's mind between the Christian life and that of the world. There is the truth, and then there is everything else. It, it's the water and oil thing, uh, light and darkness. Uh, the branch that abides, if anyone does not abide, he is thrown away and withers. They are gathered up, thrown into the fire, and burned. It is abiding in Christ or walking in the world. One of the two 
one to two. And in fact, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, he says, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That is the state. There's no gray in John's mind. Okay? There's no partial Christianity. There's no partial being a Christian. You are in Christ or you're not. And that's the way that Jesus teaches in the Gospel of John. And, and let me just say this. When there is gray in our life, that's when we're usually getting into trouble. We have made some kind of a compromise in our life. We somehow think that we can have it both ways. We can have the cake and eat it too or whatever they say. Oh, you know, I, I want Christ, but I, oh boy, I also want the things of this world. I like the things of this world. You ever feel like you're trying to broker a deal, trying to, trying to make a balance with the world and with Christ? It's convicting. When God shows up, we've compromised something if we're in that gray. And, and the challenge, I think, especially here in the West, is the abundant prosperity that we have been so favorably blessed with. It, it really is a curse. I mean, we have at our immediate disposal so many of the world's comforts. Do any of us really know what it means to trust in God? It's easy, or it's been easy to be a Christian in this country. And if we're being honest, we haven't had the same experience that other believers have had at the same time period across the rest of the world. What would it be like to profess Christ in North, North Korea or in Afghanistan? I get letters every week from the pastor over in India as their churches and homes and women are being beaten Churches being burned, pastors thrown in jail or are missing. That is the cost of discipleship and is far greater. There, the battle lines have been drawn. There, there is no compromise. It's not an option. John sees the world for what it truly is. It stands in opposition to God. It is hostile towards Christ and it hates those who are associated and follow him. Notice verse 19 as Jesus continues. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Jesus gives us a couple of reasons here as to why the disciples will be so hated by the world. First he says, because you are not of the world. You, you are now different. He says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But guess what? You're no longer of this world if you are in Christ. You, you no longer conform to the ways and the patterns of this world. I chose you out, the Lord says. You now live by a different standard. You now have a different hope. You now have a different future. You have a heavenly citizenship, and the world hates that. The believer is not living for this world, but they are sojourning through the world and longing for the next. The world loves its sin and wants everyone else to join in and everyone else to conform to the patterns of this world. And when you don't join in, that's when the truth of how they really feel starts to come out. The hatred begins to kindle and you start to see everything on fire. Proverbs 29, 27 says, he who is upright in the way is abominable to the wicked. They hate the upright of righteousness in the Lord. On the other hand, the world applauds those who practice sin. At the end of Romans 1.32, they give hearty approval to those who practice them. But the believer is called to be lights in this otherwise dark world. We're supposed to stand apart from it as indictment of it. Paul, you remember, called on the Philippians to prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God 
above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. So we don't run and hide from the world. That's not what we're being called to do. Okay? We're called to be in the midst of them to shine our light, not to blind them. If you're here a year or two ago, I did the, the, the different lights we can shine, and, and I got the uh, phone light that will really blind you. Don't blind them. <laughs> They'll knock it out of your hands and not hear anything. Show them the light. Point them to the true light. Get off of you. Get off of us. Bring them to a point of recognizing they are a sinner, that they need the one who can save them. And that is Christ. Point them to Christ. Bring them to Christ. Stop arguing about the dinosaurs. It's a waste of time. Point them to the only one who it is that can give them life. You can't. Now, the second reason that Jesus gives us here as to why the world will hate us and, and why the world will immediately hate these disciples at the end of verse 19, he says, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. There it is. <laughs> there it is. The believer has been chosen by God's eternal love and by his sovereign grace. All right? And he says, therefore, the world hates you. Now, this is another thing people want to fight about all the time. And they say, but I chose God. Well, that's fine because you know what the God says here? God says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins until I chose you. We just sang it in the song. I, I wish to boast about nothing but Christ and Christ crucified. Remember back in John 6 and verse 65, Jesus says something pretty remarkable. He says, for this reason I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it's been granted him from who? The Father, in John 6, 44, again, the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. No one, who? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. God calls his own to himself for his own divine purpose, and it's all according to his perfect will. And every time the Father draws another one of his own, and then he, he gives him to the Son, the world hates it. The world hates it, but it doesn't stop there. Once a believer has been called, he's been made a new creation in Christ. He or she is regenerated. The Holy Spirit now abides in them. The world cannot comprehend that. The believer has a different essence than the rest of the world. There is a huge contrast between that which is natural and that which is spiritual. 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul says, The natural man, i.e. the man without Christ, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually praised. And then in verses 20 through 21, Jesus gives us the third reason as to why the world will hate those who follow him, and it's because we are identified with the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is a good thing. Um, sorry, starting there in verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him, the father who sent me. Um, Christians should not be surprised at the world's hostility towards them um, since as hated Jesus from way before, it, he will also, they will also hate us. And we've seen this hatred manifesting for Christ all the way through this gospel, haven't we? How many times do we read that the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him? That they were looking to seize him, that they were picking up stones to stone him and to kill him over and over we read that if you've been with us through the gospel of john and we can also can expect uh, persecution specifically if the world can see christ in and through you in fact did you actually know that the term christian was actually used in der uh, derision it, it wasn't a compliment when it was first used it was a little christ you must be one of those little Christ, like Christ. That must be who you are. And it was used 
by the world to actually mock the early Christians. The Christian is identified with their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see this maybe most powerfully in the stoning of Stephen. If you wouldn't mind, just please turn with me to uh, Acts chapter 7 um, real quick. Just next book over. This is, this is one of the most humbling uh, microcosms that we see in Scripture of how the world feels towards believers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 7 verse 51 um, Stephen is giving a sermon, and, and it really comes to a head in verse uh, 51. He's, he's before the council, and, and Luke records, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had provably announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Now look at their response. This is the response of the world, verse 54. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and began gnashing their teeth at him, but being full of the Holy Spirit, he, Stephen, gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. This is what happens when men dead in their sin, blinded by the God of this age and of this world, are confronted with Christ. That's the world in the, in the purest form of evil, to a man who reflects Christ. Turn back with me to John 15, and I want you to see just that last little phrase there at the end of um, verse 21. Um, Jesus says, because they do not know him who sent me. The religious leaders of Israel, and this is why I wanted us to read the first couple verses of uh, chapter 16. The, the religious apostate system of Judaism in Israel were so zealous of serving God they sought to kill the Lord Jesus Christ God they did not know God who claimed to be their very father Jesus said back in chapter 8 your father is the devil and when it comes to the Godhead it's not an either or you don't get to pick and choose it's all three or none God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are one existing in three persons. Hebrews 1 verse 3 is, is beautiful. He, speaking of Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the entire universe by the word of his power, Christ. And after making purification of those sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Back in... John 14, it was Philip who was saying, Lord, just show us the Father and it'll be enough for us. And what did Jesus say? He who has seen me has seen the Father. You can't separate them. All right, let's move on to the second section, verses 22 through 25, and the holiness of Christ. In his incarnation, Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. And he added to himself perfect humanity, sinless humanity, to die for our sins. And in his words and through his works, Jesus tells us there, there are three witnesses against the world. The world is not, the world is without excuse. He says, my word is a witness. My words, my words are a witness. My works are a witness. And your law is a witness. So let's see these in scripture. Verse 22, Jesus said, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. 
but now they have no excuse for their sin. He hates my father also. Now, Jesus is not speaking here about just um, sin in general here. This is a specific sin. And here we could be saying this is specific to religious apostate Israel. We could also say that this is at the sin uh, of the world at large, though, also. But here he's kind of bringing it around to the religious leaders once again. And what Jesus is saying is that they have heard my words. They've heard my words. They've heard me testifying over and over again that I am the only way to the Father, that I and the Father are one. They wanted to kill him because Jesus kept making himself out to be God. They have heard, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. They've heard the good news preach, and now they have no excuse for their sin. What was their sin? Christ's words commanded a response, and the call was to believe. To believe. Remember, back in John 5, verse 24, Jesus confronted the religious leaders. And he said, truly, truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Jesus' words that he preached leave man without an excuse. So what is the sin that he is referring to here? It is the sin of unbelief. It is the sin of not believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. In John 16, verses 8 through 9, we'll steal a couple of verses going to next week. But Jesus says, and when he comes, speaking here of the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me. That's the point. They do not believe in me. The Lord Jesus came to his own. His own received them not. They rejected his words and the unbelieving world is then also without excuse. Jesus said in John 12, 48, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I've spoken will judge him on the last day. In verse 24, we see the second witness, his works. Jesus continues, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. Not only did the Lord Jesus Christ testify to them through his words who it was, who he was and is, but he did all of the works that the Father had prepared for him to do. Let's just consider John's gospel and the signs for just a minute. Turns water into wine, John 2. He heals the nobleman's son, right, 20 miles away in John 4. The man crippled at 30 years at the pool of Bethesda. Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. John 5, feeds the multitudes, the thousands, a couple loaves of bread, a few fish. He just creates food. All right. Walks on the water, John 6, heals the man born blind, John 9, raises the dead, raises Lazarus from the dead, John 11, who was four days stinketh. And all these signs pointed to who Jesus was. He was the Messiah. He was the God-man. He was the one that was to come. In fact, you'll remember it was John's purpose for writing this gospel in John 20, verses 30 through 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs. The last chapter, chapter 1, is so many signs, it wouldn't, there would be enough books in the world to fill the works. Jesus was nonstop miracle worker for the three plus years of his ministry. But Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, not just the ones recorded, but many other, which are not written in this book. But John says, these are written. These ones are written. So you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the whole purpose of the gospel. So we see Jesus' word as a witness, his works testify to who he is. And then in verse 25, Jesus continues, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. The world's hatred of the Lord Jesus Christ, though uh, reprehensible and unexcusable, was not outside of God's sovereign plan. 
they have done this, Jesus said, to fulfill the word that has been written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Um, the Lord here is quoting two Davidic Psalms, Psalm 35, 19, Psalm 69, 4. And his point is, is that David, uh, a mere man, could be so hated by his enemies, how much more would the sinless, blameless Son of God be hated? The world hated Jesus Christ because he exposed them of their sin and he confronted them with the reality of who he was. He was the Messiah, the Son of God. Everything that happens, whether we understand it or not, is, is all marching towards God's appointed end. Nothing has escaped his will. He has sovereignly planned all of it. He, he even uses the sin of evil men and, and unregenerated hearts to accomplish his perfect will. We see that most clearly on the cross. The most tragic and unjust thing that ever happened. And yet, thank God, evil men put him to death on that cross so we could be forgiven from our sins. God can use anything for his glory, and he does all the time. And as believers, this should encourage us. This should encourage us, no matter how much things appear to be falling apart. What's that song, Stone? It's not falling apart, it's just falling into place. We can have peace knowing that no matter what's going on out there, our God is always control up there. All right, well, let's bring this to a close. The uh, last section, the helper sent from God. And we close on a high note, thank God, in verses 26 and 27. As Jesus continues, he says, But when the helper comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. In chapter 14, Jesus has already told the disciples that they will not be facing the world alone. He will not leave them as orphans. He says uh, the helper, the Holy Spirit would come, and that literally means the one that comes alongside to help, to intercede, to console. One of the names, the comforter, the comforter, to bring us comfort. It was back in John 14, 16 through 17, Jesus said, and I will ask the Father... And he will give you another helper. Another, look at this, to be with you forever. God will be with you. God will be in you. Wow. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, don't you, church? You know him for he dwells with you. And he tells the disciples, and he will be in you. The Holy Spirit was with them. They couldn't have even looked at Jesus and been slightly interested in him. But at Pentecost, the Lord came in them, and the Spirit broke and caught a flame, and their life was never the same again. Their world is going to be turned upside down. We're Thursday night. The cross is Friday, the next day. They are going to be hated, beaten, imprisoned, and ultimately all but probably John martyred for the name. The name of the Lord Jesus Christ and for his message. But Jesus says, you will never be alone. And I am sending you a helper. And, and, and don't miss the complete Godhead in this verse. It's Trinitarian. I, the Lord Jesus Christ, will ask the Father... And he'll give you another helper. The third person of the train, the Holy Spirit. All three right there. All three members of the Godhead are before us. And they are all working in agreement. Well, back to uh, John 15. Notice in verse 26 how Jesus describes the Holy Spirit. He describes him again as the spirit of truth. Who proceeds from the Father and he will bear witness about me. The Holy Spirit will testify of the truth. He will testify of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. 
and I am the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. And the Holy Spirit testifies to the world on who the Lord Jesus Christ is. The Holy Spirit testifies to the world that Jesus is who he says he is. But let's just step back for a moment. The world hates Christ. It hates God. It is blinded by the God of this age. How is this testimony going to work to a world that hates Christ? If the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, is testifying to who the Lord Jesus Christ is, but the world hates God, how is it going to be received? How is this whole thing going to work? How is this message going to be effective to a hostile world made up of sinners who are completely spiritually dead in their sins and they're following the course of this world? How will the spiritually deaf respond to the gospel if they themselves cannot turn to God? We are by nature, Ephesians 2 says, children of wrath. That's the condition that man is born into as a result of the fall. How is it that anyone can be saved? Well, there is only one possible way, and that is by the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the word of God is preached. The Holy Spirit pierces the heart. It opens the eyes of the blind, the ears of the spiritually deaf. It convicts us of our sin and of the righteousness and the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the dead respond in faith. They no longer live for me in my life. They forsake everything, cast the pearl, and they follow the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all in the power of the Holy Spirit. The most beautiful illustration of this is probably Ezekiel 36, where God declares, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. What is impossible with man is possible with God. Titus 3.5 says essentially the same thing. He saved us. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. How? By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is to take all that the Lord has promised and he delivers it to his people. Again, what is impossible for man is possible with God. That's what uh, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. Wow. Well, John 15 closes with a commission. He tells the disciples in verse 27, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. They will be a witness to a dying world. Their testimony will be in parallel to the testimony of the Holy Spirit. And by way of application, um, that's our witness too. <laughs> uh, simply stated, we are called to proclaim Christ, Christ and Christ crucified to a dying world. If you're in the family, guess what? Welcome to the family business. Right? He commissions his own to go. <laughs> Not right now. Go. <laughs> go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to deserve all that I have commanded of you. And behold, or lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. <laughs> God didn't save you just so that you could go to heaven. God has saved you to do his work. <laughs> but it is, only, it is only through the power of the Holy Spirit that our witness can be effective. You're not saving the world. God is, right? God is. He is the one who can take that heart of stone out. I'm not a surgeon. And give you a new one. God says, I will. I will put my spirit within you. It's a personal work of God. And praise God that 
what we can't do, he can do. He can do. I can testify. He can do it. He can do it. And praise God that God saves his people because his people cannot save themselves. And as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, how are we effectively to live the life that we have been called to live? It is all by the power of the Holy Spirit. Ask any of us how we do it. We think that we're doing it on our own. The answer is going to be all the same. I can't do it on my own. We'll try. <laughs> oh, but don't we try. And we fail. We finally come to the place, Lord, I can't do it. Please give me the strength that I need today to bring glory to you. Oh, I just get in the way and mess everything up. Denying myself, dying to self, carrying your cross and following Christ. Well, welcome to the cost of discipleship, church. They will hate you. You ready to be hated? For the name? For the name. The name. It's rejection of the world, but it's being loved by God. Being loved by God. And what is better than that? If you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ today, I prayed this morning that he would open your eyes, that he would, in fact, renew your heart, that you would see that you have a desperate need. Not to make your life better. You see how ridiculous the prosperity gospel is? It's, it's awful. But because of your sin, we have a sin problem. Jesus didn't come to make your life better. He came to forgive you, give you new life in Christ. I pray that God holds a mirror of his law perfect up to your heart and that he shows you your sin. And that the only hope that you have of forgiveness of that sin is through God's son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you would cast yourself upon his amazing grace and fall at his feet. Pray the Father is drawing you this morning. Maybe somebody listening here online. By the power of Spirit, He can make you a new creation in Christ. Well, if you are in need of prayers this morning, uh, come forward, and um, we have one more song to to sing as we sing and praise the Lord together.